Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I have a different role in the network right now. I actually run it, but occasionally a book crosses my desk that uh, I really want to read and I want to talk to the author, and that is the case with Tevi Troy's Fight House, Rivalries in the White House from Truman to Trump. There are a couple of reasons for this. First of all, it's a great book, and also because Tevi used to be a host on the, on the New Books Network. He did New Books in Politics. He was one of the very first people, I, I think, to do new books in politics. That was like 10 years ago, wasn't it, Tevi? Yeah, it was 10 years ago. It was new books in public policy. New books in public policy. That's what it was. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, new books in public policy. That's exactly right. And I actually had to stop because I had a book deadline that was so overwhelming. (laughs) So it's all about books. You're always welcome back. You can come back anytime as a host. We would love to have you. So anyway, congratulations on the book and welcome to the show. Thanks. I love the whole New Books Network and I was just thrilled to do it. Every time I write a book, one of the things I'm most excited about is being able to do a new books interview. Well, that is, that is very nice of you to say. I really appreciate it. So well, why don't you begin by telling us a little bit about yourself? I mean, I should tell the audience that this book is about essentially the White House staff, uh, and Tevi was a member of the White House staff. So why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, I was a White House staffer, but I was, I'm academically trained. I got a PhD from University of Texas at Austin, and I moved to Washington recognizing the uh, challenges of getting a job in the academic job market, and I started working in government. And I worked in the House, the Senate, and then I was in the White House staff, and eventually became the Deputy Secretary of Health and Human Services, which is relevant to some of the coronavirus stuff swirling around us today. And... But I, I still had that academic training. I actually published my first book, Intellectuals and the American Presidency. It came out while I was working on the White House staff, which was uh, interesting, <laughs> to say the least. But when I left government in 2009, I said, what, do I, what am I good at? My, my job in government is over. I'm good at writing, and, or at least I think I'm good at writing. And, uh, <laughs> uh, so I decided to work on books, and I've published three books since I left, gov- left government, Highly one. acclaimed books. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Yes. Uh, all interviewed on the New Books Network. But the yes, first right. one is about presence in pop culture, which Jefferson read, like, watched, and Obama tweeted. The second one, which actually predicted that coronavirus was going to be a problem if we don't develop countermeasures, which we didn't, was called Shall We Wake the President and talked about how presidents deal with disasters. And now this third one is called Fight House, Rivalries in the White House from Truman to Trump. And as much as I love all my books, you know, hey, your books are like your babies. Uh, I think this is my best book yet. I think I'm kind of hitting my stride and I've got the best stories in this one. And it's a quite timely book as well. Yeah, stories you have. I bet you have some stories from your time as a White House staffer that you're not going to tell us on the air. <laughs> That's probably true. <laughs> yeah. So um, I always ask this question because I, I think it's kind of interesting. Why, why did you write this book? Well, there, there's an old story about the author who goes to the library to find a book on a particular subject and he can't find that book anywhere in the catalog. So he decides to write it himself. And that's kind of what happened here. I was interested in this issue of fighting in the white house. I was looking for a new book topic. It was about a year after I'd finished my last book and I kind of need a year to decompress after putting a book out. And I saw all this stuff about fighting in the white house in the, in the current administration. And I said, 
I wonder how much fighting has occurred in previous administrations. Is it a recurrent thing? I, I had knew some stories from my previous books about fights, but if I went to every White House, would I find fighting stories and when I find infighting and how interesting would those stories be? And also, would there be lessons to learn from previous White Houses and the kind of fighting we saw? And I found that, first of all, no book had been written on the subject of White House fighting across administrations. You might have had something like Doris Kearns Goodwin, Team of Rivals, which looked at actually cabinet rivalries, not White House staff rivalries, for reasons we'll get into in one administration. And obviously the musical Hamilton, and the, coming from the book Hamilton, talks about Again, cabinet rivalries in the Washington administration, but not White House staff and not cross administration. So that was one thing. The second thing I found, in addition to the fact that there were no books on this particular subject, is that the stories are hair-raising and unbelievable. And I say this as someone who is a professional presidential historian who's been looking at White House stories for my whole career. I found all these stories that I had never heard of that were actually unbelievable about what people did to each other inside the uh, what they call the 18 acres of uh, the, the area around 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Um, and then the third thing is I actually found that there were lessons about what presidents could do to address the issue of infighting if they so choose. And that last phrase is important, if they so choose, because for a variety of reasons that we can talk about in the interview, sometimes presidents don't choose to address it. Sometimes presidents say, you know, I'm not going to allow a little infighting because they think it might lead to better results or a, a better airing of the various different perspectives. Well, that's an excellent answer. There was no book about it, so you wrote it. There you yeah. go. That's, <laughs> there that's you good. Go. I'm not like yeah. the whole thing. <laughs> but that's, but that's, that's a good reason to write a book if there's no book about it. Now, you begin the book, or it's not actually on the first page, but I, I, I it really stood out to me. Uh, and that is that before uh, the Roosevelt administration, there were, I, I think, I'm, pardon my ignorance and all this, there were cabinet officers, but there was no White House staff, really. And then it emerges or evolves over the next 20 years. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that, that's basically the case. The uh, president, and when I mentioned the Washington administration, where you had, the, the president's aides were basically the cabinet members. That was, you know, if he wanted something on economics, he called the Treasury Secretary. If it was a foreign policy issue, he called the Secretary of State. That, that was it. Those were the aides. Um, over time, you had the development of some private secretaries to the president. So in the Lincoln administration, he had two secretaries, Nicolay and Hay, both first names John, John Nicolay, John Hay. And they were helpful to Lincoln, but they, you know, they didn't have the power or authority of a White House staffer like we know today. They would, they, they, they would follow Lincoln's orders and try and direct in the Roosevelt administration, the Franklin Roosevelt administration, yeah. something called the Brownlow Commission, which looked at the growth of government. Government was expanding to deal with crises, certainly domestic initially, but later on foreign with World War II. And as government was growing, it became clear that the president needed help. And that was the famous conclusion of the Brownlow Commission. The president needs help, uh, forward conclusion. And then it said that the president should have a team of administrative assistants, with a passion for anonymity, meaning they were supposed to not be in the headlines. Now, as we know, that's no longer the case, but that was what the Brownlow Commission called for. And it basically set up the structure of what's known as the executive office of the president, meaning it's not the president with just a secretary or two or, or, or the, you know, the personal aides that he needs, but a structured environment with a press secretary and eventually a national security advisor. Then it developed into a, a domestic policy advisor and an economic policy advisor. And these roles developed over time. But initially, post-Brownlow, there were these silos of areas in which the president would get the assistance he needed. And it is that dynamic 
the creation of a White House staff that leads to some of the tension I talk about in White House, because you may now have a chief foreign policy advisor in the White House, but you also have a secretary of state who thinks he's the chief foreign policy advisor. And that inherently leads to disagreements, and that's some of the tension that I get out in the White House. Yeah, I think it's important that people understand the scale of this, at least the present scale of it. There are 1,600 White House staffers. Is that right? The executive office of the president does have about 1,600 people. Many of those people work at the National Security Council, the Office of Management Budget, the U.S. Trade Representative. So they are not what you and I may think of as the kind of sharky West Wing aides that you see on a right. show like The West Wing or in, in the movies. But there are 1,600 people who work in there. Most of them career officials work there, president in, president out. But there are still about 400 people, I estimate, who serve strictly at the pleasure of the president, who serve as political appointees in each White House, and they turn over each time. And the upper echelons of those people are what we know of as the White House staff, meaning the people you read about, you know, the, the Ted Sorensons, the Karl Roves, the, um, the David Axelrods, the people who get involved in some of these fights I'm talking about, but also are the ones who uh, become famous while working at the White House and then tend to remain famous years after as they become talking heads and speech givers and columnists, etc. Okay, so let's begin with some of the stories. And your book begins uh, with uh, Truman and Ike. And uh, I think we'll probably just go through them and you can tell stories about this and kind of give some historical background and see how it's changing. Uh, Truman and Ike, tell us about them. Well, Truman and Ike were the first two presidents I look at in large part because they're the first two presidents to have full presidencies with the White House staff. Remember the Brownlow Commission started under Roosevelt, so Roosevelt starts without a White House staff and develops over time. But Truman enters with a White House staff, and he has to figure out how to assign it and how to deal with it. And he recognized that there was going to be tension between his White House advisors and the cabinet members. And this comes to light most prominently on the issue of the recognition of the state of Israel. Right now we think of Israel as a staunch ally and can't imagine America not being allied with Israel. But at the time, there's a real open question of whether America should even recognize the state of Israel at its creation in 1948. And the Secretary of State, George Marshall, who was a senior general in World War II, he was opposed to the recognition of Israel. Not only opposed, but he was adamantly opposed to it. Even threatened that he might not vote for Truman if he decided the wrong way on this, which is kind of a, 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 a stark comment for a, a sitting cabinet member. But he's arguing against recognizing Israel, and Truman recognizes that he needs to have a different perspective, so it can't just be the Marshall perspective, and he assigns Clark Clifford, who at the time is a junior White House staffer, and he's not the famous fixer of later years or the defense secretary of Lyndon Johnson right now, he's a, he's a relatively junior person, but he's a very smart and capable lawyer. And Truman asks Clifford to make the case for Israel. Clifford prepares for this like a legal brief. And when the time comes, he makes the argument in the White House in front of Truman and in front of Marshall. And he wins the day. Truman decides, for a variety of reasons, to recognize Israel, much to the consternation of Marshall. Marshall is so mad at losing this argument in front of Truman that he never again speaks to Clifford or utter words of his life. How's that for holding a grudge? Yeah, really? Yeah. Well, I mean, this is an interesting thing to remind Americans, I think, and that is that uh, what we now think of just automatic support of Israel is, it's not exactly a new thing, but there was a time in which this just wasn't the case. 
that Americans were very, uh, the, the administrations were very, they were kind of hands off in terms of Israel. It wasn't clear what they were going to do. Yeah, and, and in both Republican and Democratic administrations right now, the, yeah. the perception is that Republican administrations tend to be more favorable towards Israel than Democratic ones, but that was not always the case either. Yeah. So that yeah. this thing does change over time. And then, you know, that's the great thing about history. You, you don't just assume everything is as what it was. You look back and see what things were, and see how things changed over time. So that's one of the things I like doing in, in Fight House. And also, it's really interesting that so many of the fights that I detail in Fight House actually have to do with Israel, because Israel has often been a flashpoint, and there's been disagreement within presidential administrations on the issue. Yeah, yeah, that, that is right. So let's let's move on to uh, Camelot, uh, John F. Kennedy's White House, and what were the big tensions and fights there? Just a well, couple the, of anecdotes. Yeah, yeah There's two that, that I really focus on. Number one is right at the very top of the administration, you have two people whom the president can't fire. One is the vice president, Linda Johnson, who <laughs> is a, you know, a, a challenging person in the uh, yeah. No matter how you look at it. Um, but then there's also the president's brother, Robert F. Kennedy, who is the attorney general. And a, a kind of a cardinal management rule is don't have people you can't fire under you because you have no leverage over them. So Johnson and Robert F. Kennedy hate, hate, hate each other. They hate each other from their times when they both worked in the U.S. Senate. Johnson, obviously, as a senator and Robert F. Kennedy as a staffer to Joe McCarthy, which people often don't remember. Yeah, right. And the first time they meet is already bad news because Kennedy is sitting down to lunch with McCarthy. Johnson comes over to glad hand everybody and shakes hands. And Kennedy doesn't like Johnson and doesn't stand up or shake hands with Johnson. Johnson does not like that. And he just kind of stands over Kennedy, all six foot four of him, and towers over Kennedy and looms over him and glowers at him until Kennedy finally relents and shakes his hand. And the, the relationship did not get better from there. And the, the great, great story I have in White House is that uh, Joe Kennedy, Robert and John F. Kennedy's father, said, Bobby's my boy. When he hates you, you stay hated. <laughs> and, uh, and Johnson really stayed hated by Kennedy, but Johnson also continued to hate Kennedy throughout the administration. And then the really interesting thing is that the power dynamic completely shifts because when Kennedy is president and Robert F. Kennedy is attorney general, then Robert F. Kennedy is really the top advisor and the one that his brother listens to the most. But then, as we all know, Kennedy is tragically assassinated and suddenly Robert F. Kennedy is attorney general in an administration for a president who hates him. And I tell in the book that after they have an initial confrontation shortly after Kennedy is assassinated in the first cabinet meeting that Johnson holds, they have a little bit of a, a tiff because Johnson feels that Kennedy intentionally walked in late to show him up. So they have a, a fight in, uh, after that cabinet meeting. And then they don't speak for two months, which is astonishing because if you think about it, Robert F. Kennedy was the sitting attorney general, and he doesn't talk to the president for whom he works for two months. So that was not a good relationship. Uh, the second yeah, one I, I, I want to mention just quickly is that a bit of a rivalry between Ted Sorensen, who is the top White House staffer advisor to Kennedy, and Arthur Schlesinger, who is a uh, kind of an intellectual gadfly and a Pulitzer Prize winning historian who works in the Kennedy administration, but not in a prominent role. So he's more famous than, than Sorensen, but Sorensen is more powerful within the White House. And then when the administration ends and Kennedy obviously is tragically assassinated, then suddenly Schlesinger reverts and he's now the famous historian again and writes a, 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 a book after the administration that wins the Pulitzer Prize. And Sorensen, his fame is really 
link to the fact that he was close to Kennedy. Without Kennedy there anymore, he's been at a loss for what to do. Mm-hmm. So, so LBJ just he inherits a staff. He does Correct. inherit the staff, but yeah. he he's in a weird place in that he kind of wants to keep the staff because he wants to keep the Kennedy legacy. But at the same time, he doesn't like the Kennedy staff and doesn't yeah, right, exactly. Yeah. So he begs them, begs them to stay and insists that they stay. But at, at the same time, he, um, he moves around them. He kind of circumvents them by hiring his own staff that is loyal to him. So he kind of has a shadow White House staff for a while. And who is in that shadow White House staff? Remind me. Oh, Jack Valenti was one of the most prominent people. Yeah, Jack Valenti, right. Yeah, yeah. I would say that, that's number two. But uh, Walter Jenkins, uh, I mean, you know, he had his own LBJ people who came in, but he was skeptical of the Kennedy people throughout. Yeah, and uh, yes, he, he was. I, 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 he could be a petty person. He could be very petty, LBJ. I mean, in, yeah. oh. in a huge way. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you used that word because my motto for writing the book, for writing Fight House, was the pettier the better. Yeah, well, LBJ takes the cake. (laughs) Well, I got a lot of cake takers in Fight House, but yes, I agree. (laughs) Yeah, he was a touchy dude. He really was. Um, For all his magnanimity that you kind of see when you see him speak, he was not magnanimous by any means. He was, uh, well, we talked about this before the interview. I've read a lot of the Cairo biography, and uh, he was really quite something. And he was brutal on Um, staff. These ridiculous days, he would get up at 6 a.m., he expected the staff to be at their phones. This is when you didn't have cell phones. So he'd start calling people in part to find out what was going on, but also in part to make sure that they were at their desks. And then he'd work till about two or three. And then he'd take a nap and take a walk. But his staff was expected to keep working. And then he'd work late into the night. So his staff was expected to work these 18-hour days. And I actually tell the story of a guy named Billy Lee Brammer, who wrote a, a novel, a pretty well-regarded novel called The Gay Place, about a Johnson-like politician. And he wrote it in his supposedly spare time, right, on nights and on weekends. And Johnson chides him for, why, what are you doing writing a book on, uh, you know, on, on my time? And, and Brammer says, well, this is on the weekends and nights. And, and Johnson says, you should have been answering my mail. I mean, you work for yeah. Johnson, you work for him all the time, not part of the time. Yeah, that is exactly right. And that comes out in the Cairo biography. And this had started very early in Johnson's career, where he would essentially work people to death. I mean, literally, they, would, they couldn't work anymore. They would stop. They would quit. I mean, even with the prospect of, because his star was rising, they would still say, I can't do this anymore. It's not safe. Right. <laughs> yeah, he, he, was, he, he was a slightly insane person to work for. Yeah, he was. So let me ask this about the, because I'm very interested in the Vietnam War. Was there a lot of tension in, the, in LBJ's staff over the issue of the Vietnam War? Well, surprisingly little, but that's not a good thing. I mean, what, what the famous word about the Vietnam administration is groupthink. John yeah. did not want to have dissent in the administration on Vietnam or anything else. And if you don't have dissent, you don't have outside voices coming in. And you don't listen to different perspectives. There was one guy named George Ball, who was the Secretary oh, yeah. of State. And he was allowed to raise questions about Vietnam, but he was the only one. And as I say in the book, while Johnson allowed him, it doesn't mean the rest of the staff liked him for doing so. So he faced his own challenges there. But the atmosphere was so suffocating that I tell a story in White House said there was a group of aides at the State Department who had some skepticism about the war, for good reason, and they were afraid to form a group to discuss it. So they formed a group that they called the non-group, and they met at secret times so that Johnson wouldn't find out that oh they boy. were questioning the issue. <laughs> oh, boy. The non-group. But, well, you know, Johnson is probably a bad analogy, but, you know, analogies are 
are kind of instructive. He was a lot more like Trump than I think people recognize because he, 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 from very early in his career, said the only thing that's really important to me is loyalty. That's it. You have to do what I say. And other than that, I'm just not interested in what you do, but you have to do what I say. Yeah, I mean, there's something there. I mean, he obviously was so much more focused on government, right? I mean, his whole career was in government, so that's yeah. an interesting contrast. But uh, look, look, a lot of presidents have big egos, and uh, you, know, uh, you and I may look at those those debates and say, why would anybody put yourself through this? It's just insane. Especially a guy like Mike Bloomberg, right? Uh, yeah, right. You know, he's got more money than he knows what to do with. Why, why would he put himself through the rigors of the presidency? I actually was kind of embarrassed in that one debate. Uh, but these guys have such egos, they think that they can solve the problem. And that's why that's what inspires so many people to run. And that's often one of their undoings. Yeah. Okay. So speaking of slightly crazy people, Nixon. And, and here we have people that are very, you know, that we like Kissinger's around and people that I, I think people will remember these people now. Yeah, when you say slightly crazy, I wasn't sure if you're going to mention Nixon or Kissinger because Kissinger yeah, right. well, yeah, okay. an insanely sharp elbowed bureaucratic infighter. And if you think about it, he comes to the administration at a major disadvantage. He is the national security advisor when William Rogers is the Secretary of State. William Rogers is older, has a long standing relationship with Nixon, has previously been a cabinet member. He was Attorney General when Nixon was Vice President under Eisenhower. Uh, he's close to to Nixon personally, Nixon would visit him and even get a desk at his law firm when he would visit D.C. And so you've got all these reasons why you'd think that Rogers would have the advantage over this relatively young at the time, um, neurotic, uh, heavily accented Jewish intellectual who doesn't really seem like it stands a chance to compete with Rogers. And yet Kissinger runs rings around Rogers. It's constantly leaking to the press is constantly um, uh, holding up the process so that nobody else can weigh in on issues and uh, constantly demeaning his opponents. And it emerges with Kissinger so victorious that he becomes both National Security Advisor and Secretary of State, the only person to hold those two portfolios at the same time in history. Probably the only person ever to do that. Uh, But one great, great story of just how crazy Kissinger was is Kissinger liked to date famous women. He dated uh, Jill St. John, who was a Bond girl. Oh, yeah. And the story appears in the press that Kissinger is dating this attractive actress. And Kissinger goes to Nixon and complains that Rogers had leaked the story about him dating Jill St. John. The truth is that Kissinger had leaked the story. (laughs) One, so that people would know he's dating a Bond girl, but two, so that he could tell Nixon that, oh, look, Rogers is a leaker, isn't he bad news? Wow. Can you shed some light? I, and this is a bit of a digression, but I always wondered about it. Can can you shed some light on the relationship between Nixon and Kissinger? Because they just seem obviously they come from incredibly different backgrounds. I mean, really, like you could hardly imagine people who came from two different backgrounds than these two guys. Why did they? They seem to have bonded. Was that did they? Nixon liked to be challenged, and one of the disadvantages that Rogers had as Secretary of State was that. He didn't know any more than Nixon about foreign policy, and he wasn't smarter than Nixon. Nixon liked to be challenged, and Kissinger challenged him. Now, that said, Nixon also liked to put Kissinger in his place. There's this one great story where they're having, Kissinger's obviously Jewish, and they're having a a debate about some Israel-related issue, and Kissinger makes a point, and Nixon says, can we have the American perspective now? (laughs) So Kissinger 
Nixon was all too happy to knock Kissinger down a peg or two, but he also recognized how brilliant Kissinger was, and he felt like he needed him. And, and Nixon's, as a strategist, I, I don't think any 20th century president holds a candle to Nixon as a strategist in terms of not dealing with crisis to crisis, but thinking long-term about where he wanted things to go. And, and if you think about it, Kissinger and Nixon managed to knock the Soviets out of the Middle East, and they did not reemerge in the Middle East until the Obama administration, yeah. based on some strategic miscalculations there. So they really knew what they were doing from a strategic perspective, but you can't just do that on your own as president. It helps to have a strategic thinker like Kissinger there with you. Yeah, I mean, there has been a kind of revision of the way we look at Nixon going on for about 20 years now. And I think one of the things that's concluded is that he, in terms of foreign policy, was really quite a brilliant guy. Right, but also an incredibly flawed person who did say... Oh, no, 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 no so, doubt about it. Yeah. You know, he's, he's never going to have the kind of revision that, let's say, an Eisenhower did. No. Fred no. Greenstein wrote The Hidden Hand Presidency, and people say, oh, well, maybe Eisenhower was smart after all. Maybe Eisenhower knew what he was doing after all. Uh, so Nixon is always going to be colored yeah. by the, the, the flaws, the, you know, the, the rages, the, and obviously the little water game scandal. Right, right. And all that foul mouth stuff that got caught on tape. Um, so not very decorous that. So anyway, then uh, Nixon resigns and we get Gerald Ford. And the thing that kind of struck me about this is that Gerald Ford just seems like the nicest guy. How, how could he? How, I mean, he's just a good guy. And uh, what kind of fighting could go on in his White House? Well, he is a nice guy. And I have all these sources saying what a nice guy he is in White House. But he also had one of the most rivalrous infighting yeah. administrations ever. Um, and it's certain when people in the interview was asking which administration that I cover in full had the most infighting, I always say the Ford administration. And in part, it's because he was a nice guy. He wasn't able to control it. He wasn't able to, in a serious way, say, guys, cut it out. He wasn't able to take tough steps like firing Bob Hartman, who was his longstanding friend, but a very poisonous internal actor. Uh, there's a Hartman kind of would, uh, he, he was chief of staff to Ford as vice president. He didn't have the skills or capabilities to be chief of staff as president when Ford was president. So they give, they, he's a chief speechwriter to Ford instead. And he kind of takes over the room next to the Oval Office. And from there, he monitors the presidential inbox. And if he sees something he doesn't like, he pulls it out and gives it <laughs> to Novak, the, the political reporters. Um, and if he wants something in there, he just slips it in without going through the staffing process. Which is just not a way to run a White House, but that—that's no. how that's no. really Hartman handled it, and Ford was mostly unable to handle it. Yeah, I think that's a good analysis because he just does seem like a real nice guy and not able to do that kind of stuff. Nixon, yes, Ford, no. So anyway, Ford doesn't last very long, and then we have Jimmy Carter, who uh, I, I always say is the best ex-president of all time. <laughs> yeah, I know a lot of people say that. Um, I don't even think he's such a great ex-president, but he was definitely a better ex-president than he was president. Yeah, that, that goes uh, about and, and his problem was he was a micromanager, right? Ford kind of maybe was too nice to deal with stuff. Jimmy Carter wanted to micromanage everything, including, as I talk about in Fight House, the White House tennis courts. And he was he was monitoring who got to use the tennis courts. Really not a great use of presidential time. No, not Joe really. Cal Joe Califano, who worked under LBJ, but was Secretary of um, HEW, um, Health, Education, Welfare, under under Carter, said that Jimmy Carter was the most the most highly paid 
assistant secretary for planning that we've ever had because he would get involved in the details of writing legislation and the like, which is not something that a president should be doing. Uh, he just he didn't have a good sense of what his role was. And at the same time, he was unwilling to assign someone to the role of chief of staff. And chief of staff is has a very important role in the White House. The chief of staff can be the bad guy. The chief of staff is the guy who can make the trains run on time. The chief of staff can be in charge of the process, while the president should be out there giving big strategic direction and giving speeches and, and being the big picture guy in general. Um, not having a chief of staff, I think, sets you back and puts you at a disadvantage. And I think mm -hmm. Carter self-imposed that disadvantage of himself from the beginning. And so then let's move on to Reagan. I'm particularly interested in the role that Nancy plays, because obviously they were very much in love, which is kind of sweet. You know, it really is. It's kind of sweet. Uh, it's but, definitely sweet. But, yeah, uh, I don't know if it's useful, but it's very sweet. And <laughs> What role did she play in all this infighting? Yeah, well, she definitely had strong perspectives on what should be happening in the White House and, and how people how. should be treating her husband. Um, and that's from the beginning. The uh, Mike Deaver, who was the deputy chief of staff, who was assigned to kind of keep tabs on Nancy and, and give reports to her, that he was. Uh, it was said that he was assigned the Mommy Watch because that was her nickname internally. Oh yeah, but, yeah. Uh, while things are going okay, she's relatively under control. And the first term, the first Reagan term went pretty smoothly. It's the second term when you have what I call the worst staff trade in history, where Jim Baker, who's a very good chief of staff, meets with Don Regan, who is the secretary of the treasury, and they agree to swap jobs for the second term. Unprecedented. <laughs> never heard of such a thing. And Don Regan, while he was okay secretary of the treasury, was a terrible chief of staff. And he was imperious, and he was full of himself, and uh, Nancy complained that he got the chief part, but he didn't really understand the of staff part. <laughs> yeah, that's a good and, line. Good line. She was good for the lines. Um, but at one point, there's a better line, because she gets in a fight with Regan about how to use Reagan's, President Reagan's time, and Regan gets mad at her and hangs up the phone, hangs up on the first lady. And Jim Baker, who was his Regan's predecessor as chief of staff, says, that's not just a firing offense. That's a hanging offense. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that is. That's, yeah. Wow. And wow. so Regan doesn't last much long, long beyond that. Mm -hmm. And so Nancy was, was quite a pleasure. But then Regan gets his own revenge because he writes a memoir in which he talks about how Nancy's, yeah. Na Nancy's scheduling suggestions were influenced by her conversations with an astrologer. And that. Yeah, that most White House memoirs are, are forget about, but yeah. that one insight from Regan or that one that one tidbit from Regan is something that has stood the test of time. Let, let me ask you just very briefly to talk about the, the moment at which uh, it became clear that Reagan wasn't really all there anymore. What role did the staff play then? Yeah, it's it's kind of unclear because it's um, it's a little bit like a, you know the, the frog boiling image, right? It's, it's not something that happens overnight. Yeah. Um, obviously, he was shot early on in the administration that took a physical toll on him. Um, in the second term, there was a sense that he wasn't paying as close attention as he should. But I don't know. I think if Jim Baker perhaps had stayed as chief of staff, maybe the Iran-Contra stuff wouldn't have gotten out of control. Regan did not get along well with Reagan's national security advisor. Um, Regan just didn't have any foreign policy experience. So, I'm not sure so much that it was uh, Reagan's uh, loss of faculty so much as having the wrong staff at the mm -hmm. time uh, was the problem in that second term. But also, if you think about it, 
Reagan was, throughout his presidency, younger than the three people who are still eligible oh, yeah. for the next president of the United <laughs> States. Meaning the yeah. president plus the, the two remaining challengers. Yeah, exactly. So in the next chapter, which is about George H.W., Bush, you uh, you reminded me of someone that I'd kind of forgotten about, but who uh, he was a real ass kicker, John Sununu, and <laughs> one of my favorite people back in the day. Uh, uh, could you talk a little bit about him and his? Yeah, John Sununu was the governor of New Hampshire, and he helped Bush win the New Hampshire primary in 1992, which is uh, 1988, which was crucial to Bush's winning real winning election. I mean, he wouldn't yeah. have secured the nomination if he had lost that because he lost to Bob Dole in Iowa. So uh, they owed Sununu. Sununu was was known as quite conservative at the time, and he was also brilliant and would brag about his IQ, which is you know, not the nicest thing to do, but uh, that, that, there it is. Um, and so Bush feels like he owes him, and he makes Sununu the chief of staff, and it's a big mistake. Uh, Sununu is uh, territorial and angry and prone to yelling at people. Yeah. Uh, he's just not a great fit as chief of staff. And while he's chief of staff, he kind of allies with Dick Darman, who is the director of the Office of Management Budget, who also is quite territorial, also likes to brag about his brilliance. He brags about his SAT scores rather than his IQ. <laughs> who does that stuff? Come on. Darman and Sununu. And the two yeah. are so convinced of their own brilliance that they really are not open to other ideas from anyone else. And the daily staff meetings, you would have Darman at one side of a long table and Sununu at the other, and they would basically berate anyone who dared to speak up. And you know, we know from history and from you know, uh, Politburo meetings that uh, if you're going to be punished for speaking, you're not going to speak much. Yeah. And anybody who did dare to speak would, would get humiliated. And they, it happened so frequently that this process of getting humiliated for speaking up in the meeting was called being Darmanized. Oh, really? Darman would just tear into you. Uh, so the, the two of them, I think, really help um, squelch any domestic policy creativity in the Bush administration and, and, um, mm -hmm. for, for Bush. And, and one of the reasons why he loses that 1992 re-election effort is because he's seen as out of touch with the American people. His foreign policy was successful. He had the Gulf War and he had a strong foreign policy team and he managed the end of the, of the Cold War pretty well. But his domestic policy team was just cowed by Darman and Sununu at the, the top of the game. And the, the one guy who does try and come up with the creative policy solutions, Jim Pinkerton, is humiliated by Darman. Darman gives a speech uh, mocking Pinkerton's proposal of, for a new paradigm. He calls it, brother, can you paradigm? And, <laughs> and, 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 and Pinkerton is marginalized as a, as a result. And at the end of the day, the Bush loses that, that re-election effort to Bill Clinton, in part because of his general sense of being out of touch and, and unable to address the domestic policy needs of the American people. Mm -hmm. So then we come to the Clinton administration and I'm, uh, I, I, the way I think of the Clinton administration now is he was the person who decades ago now showed the democratic party the way to go. And then they just forgot about that way. <laughs> entirely. <laughs> just entirely. They just, they just forgot it. Uh, it's, it's a but, great point because a, a democratic candidate who takes that approach I think would win nine out of ten elections. Oh, I, 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 I mean, I don't want to get too deeply into it, but I, I think, I, I think Donald Trump is beatable. You just, 
<laughs> I don't I don't want to say anymore <laughs> because yeah Clinton saw the pathway and uh, you know the Democrats had to get spanked for three straight elections in right. 84 88 before they recognized that pathway and even so there was a lot of resistance and I talked about this in White House that that Clinton was the chairman of the DLC which stood for Democratic Leadership Coalition but people like Jesse Jackson derided it as Democrats for the leisure class yeah it's a more pro business yeah. less um, less progressive approach. But uh, because of that tension within the Democratic Party, when Clinton comes in, you've got a more liberal wing of staffers, and then you have Clinton's kind of more moderate, more DLC-type approach, and they're, they're in conflict. And there's a lot of chaos in the early days of the Clinton administration. And the liberal tack of the early years of the administration lead led directly to that 1994 election loss where Republicans win both houses of Congress for the first time yeah. in a generation. And Clinton realizes he's got to reassess, and he brings in a secret aide to help him. The aide is codenamed Charlie, but it's really Dick Morris, the one-time Democratic political consultant who was drifting to the right, and he's giving Clinton secret direction about how to move his administration more to right to remember they called it triangulation mm -hmm. where you're not quite on the Republican side. You're not quite on the Democratic side. You're kind of standing above those two poles and you look like you're acting on behalf of the American people, but there are internal white house aides who don't like this triangulation, don't like this move to the right. And they discover who Charlie is. It's Dick Morris and Harold Ickes knows Morris for decades, dating back to their time New York City politics, and they hated each other for decades. In fact, there's one great quote where Morris is complaining about Ickes, and he says, I know of 23 times that Harold has effed me. Well, I'm not going to use the, the bad word, but <laughs> um, yeah. it's there in Fight House. Um, and later on, Harold messes up um, with, messes, um, Harold Ickes messes Morris again by leaking his hotel bills from the mm -hmm. Jefferson Hotel when he's using the mini bar and watching movies too much. And uh, that, <laughs> that, that I say becomes even two dozen times that, uh, yeah. that, that Icky's right. done him ill. Right. Can you talk a little bit about, I, I don't like it when people call Hillary Clinton, Hillary. I, I don't think that's appropriate. Mrs. Clinton, what, what role she played in all of this? Yeah. Mrs. Clinton is really interesting. She's probably more on the liberal wing in that first term, but she, is on board with the Charlie secret. She's written into the secret that Dick Morris is, is advising yeah. before anybody else is. So she, Bill, and, and Morris are the only ones who know early on. Um, but then in the second term, I think she has a really important galvanizing role. She's not divisive within the administration in the second term. She actually, when Clinton's affair with Monica Lewinsky is discovered and Clinton's in trouble, she kind of uh, coalesces behind Clinton. She's obviously mad at him yep personal standpoint, but politically she recognizes that if she breaks from him and the Democratic Party falls apart, they're in danger of Clinton being impeached. So she talks about the vast right-wing conspiracy, and she works with Sidney Blumenthal, um, Sid, Sid Vicious, they call him, or, or, or G.K. <laughs> for Grassy Knoll, because he liked conspiracy theory so much. Yeah. And Sid was kind of on the outs early on, but in the second term, when they need the, they recognize the need to circle the wagons against the Republican attempt to impeach Clinton, the Democrats within the White House united. Actually, I find that the second term Clinton White House is one of the most unified White House huh. because of the common enemy. And I have a wonderful quote from Ann Lewis in the book, who was a, a sister of Barney Frank and a White House aide under Clinton, 
where she says, uh, Newt Gingrich, Henry Hyde, Ken Starr, you want me to side with those people? So she was not, even though a strong, staunch feminist, she was not willing to criticize Clinton over the Monica Lewinsky affair because she saw the Republican alternative so much worse. And that view of the Republicans is so much worse is what unites the Clinton White House in the second White House term. Well, that's kind of admirable in a way. I mean, she was in a very, very tough position and she sacrificed, I think, for for her political beliefs. So that, good on her. Um so let's come to George W. Bush, W as they call him, uh, President Bush, I think we should probably say, but uh, he has some very serious things in terms of international relations to do. Can you talk a little bit about the infighting that went on there? Yeah, so this is interesting in that I served in this administration, so I yep. saw some of this stuff firsthand. I worked on the domestic policy side of the House. When I went to join the White House, I asked a friend who worked in the Clinton administration if he had any words of advice, and he had one quick, immediate piece of advice come to mind. He said, watch your back, suggesting that a White House is a difficult and rivalrous place to work. What I found on the domestic policy side of the House was that Bush was actually pretty good at curtailing some of the infighting, and it was a strategic decision by him. He was the first NBA president. He didn't want to see a lot of infighting. Aides like Karl Rove told him they didn't want to go to Washington to work in the White House because they were they had heard the White Houses were such difficult places and Bush said this is going to be a different kind of administration. And so he was able to curtail the fighting on the domestic side of the House. However, on the foreign policy side of the yeah. House, it was much more of a mess. You had some very big, um, big people in big roles like uh, um, Don Rumsfeld at Defense and Colin Powell at State and you had Dick Cheney as uh, one of the more powerful vice presidents, and Condoleezza Rice, who was, from an experiential level, junior to all of them, really unable to handle the fighting among those three. And um, for that reason, you have one of the most poisonous infighting relationships in any administration is the foreign policy on the George W. Bush White House. And it's so bad that it leads to what I call the worst thing that any staffer does to any other staffer in the history of White House infighting. Oh, do tell. Which is where Dick Armitage, who's the deputy chief, of the, uh, the deputy secretary of state and a close ally of Colin Powell, is the one who leaks the name Valerie Plame and her role uh. as a undercover agent to the press. And the White House engages, and Justice Department engages in an investigation of this, and. Uh, Armitage and Powell know that Armitage is the guy who did the leaking, but they intentionally do not own up to it because they don't want to fall behind in the inter-office wars between state defense and the vice president's office, so they keep silent as their colleagues, you know, this isn't partisan, this isn't Democrats versus Republicans, this is within one administration. Their colleagues are investigated, face legal jeopardy, and one of them is actually convicted for apparent perjury in the questioning about an act that he did not do, right? Because we all know that, that it was Armitage who did the leak of, of the name, but one of the aides, Scooter Libby, was uh, was eventually convicted for the, the perjury during the conversations about who had leaked the name. And if Armitage had not stayed silent, you would have ended the investigation. You wouldn't have had people not only face legal peril, but one person who actually uh, was convicted. Hmm. Yeah, I know. I remember all that very vividly, actually, all that infighting. So let's go to the 
the penultimate chapter, and that is about Barack Obama. I, th- I think I probably told you I knew Barack Obama a little bit back in the day. We used to play basketball together, and you, you say the era of no drama Obama. He really was kind of not a dramatic guy even when I knew him. I played basketball with him. He'd never get in fights. <laughs> not like me. <laughs> and how good was he? I always wondered. Uh, he, he was pretty good. Um, he's a very thin guy. And and so that, that that's a hindrance. I mean, he, he was tall and thin, and so it was pretty easy to move him around. But he was he was I a felt, very nice guy. I felt like all the reports of his uh, presidential basketball playing skill got better and better as he became president. Right? Yeah, well, you know, quite honestly, he wasn't as good as I was, but <laughs> but he was good, and it was fun to play with him. Yeah, no, and he seems like a fun guy to hang out with. Yeah, but, he was very nice. But he sees previous White Houses kind of driven by infighting, and previous presidential campaigns, including the John Kerry campaign, especially uh, torn apart by infighting. He's determined to have a different approach, and so he comes up with this theory of no drama, Obama. Um, Dan Pfeiffer, who was communications director on the campaign, talks in his memoir about how they have a no a-holes rule and they have a no <laughs> F-distribution rule. And there are all these rules about how you don't want to be causing trouble. And those rules work pretty well on the campaign. Once you get to the White House, things are a little more challenging, a little different. And so, so I argue that there is more infighting that we knew than we knew about at the time. Press kind of bought this no drama Obama line, I think, pretty well. Uh, but there's stuff that's subsequently come out in some of the memoirs about some things that were going on, including what I say is a gender-based divide in the Obama White House. The senior staff women of the Obama White House and the uh, somewhat vulgar nickname for themselves that um, you can read in the book, but I'm not going to say on family podcast time. And they uh, they they had their own separate dinners where they. Men weren't allowed, and they talked about the theory of amplification, where they would, if a woman said something, uh, one of the other women from the team would have to say, oh, yes, I agree with Susie or Jane or Mary or whatever the name is. And sometimes it kind of pushed the men aside. And Pfeiffer, who talks in his memoir about how great all these rules were and how everybody loved each other, uh, suddenly finds that he's pushed aside as communications director when he thought he should get the job in the White House. And instead, it goes to a woman who frankly, didn't even have a prominent role in the campaign, didn't work on the campaign, and had endorsed Hillary. And so this woman gets the role of communications director, and Pfeiffer goes ballistic, and all the rules that he has about you know, appropriate behavior within the organization kind of go out the window. And so we see a couple of examples like that of infighting. And then another issue is Valerie Jarrett, who was a staffer who knew Barack and uh, Michelle, I use the first names just for clarity here. Yeah. So President Mrs. Obama, when they were Barack and Michelle, and while they were dating, and so has a long-standing relationship with them, and she would go to the White House residence at night to talk to them, and some people say circumvent the policy process, and she did this so often that her nickname became the Night Stalker, because she mm. would get her policy proposals through while she went to see the President at night. She had the ear of the king and the queen. Yes. In a, in a way that circumvented the process. Yeah, right, exactly. So we have a, few, a couple of minutes left, and uh, you uh, propose at the end and the conclusion of the book lessons uh, that you learned and that might be useful to presidents. And uh, I'm certain that Donald Trump is listening, and he will uh, follow all of your prescriptions. Well, I'm absolutely certain of it. So um, maybe you could tell us what you've learned and what lessons that uh, one should uh, take away from this research. Yeah, well, I say... 
that presidents have ways to address infighting if they so choose. And the president may choose not to address infighting because they may want to get better results. Bill Clinton, for example, knew that bringing in Dick Morris would lead to staff tension, but he did it because he thought he would get more creative ideas and he would be challenged on his thinking by Morris, and, and he was right. And it was actually a successful move to bring in Morris. And even George Stephanopoulos, who hated Morris and spends most of his memoir bashing Morris, acknowledges that Clinton got better results on the staff as a result. So again, presidents have to answer a threshold question of whether they want to address infighting. But if they do, I give three strategies. Number one is... You have to have ideological comity, C-O-M-I-T-Y. You have to have agreement within your staff about the ideology and not have people riveted by ideological division. So if you have a staff that gets along ideologically, staff's going to get along better from an interpersonal perspective. Second is process. Process is so important. I mentioned this in the Valerie Jarrett story. There is a strict White House process. Papers have to go through the staff secretary. Meetings have to run on time. People raise their issues to the president in front of other people. You all have a chance to have your voice heard at the table. If you stick to that process, you're going to have less infighting. If people circumvent the process, you're going to have people leaking to the press and complaining and, and trying to undercut one another. And then the third is presidential tolerance. If a president says, I don't want to see this stuff, then you're going to see less infighting. But if a president kind of laughs it off or says, you know, you guys work this out or you know, don't bother me with this, then you're going to see or infighting, because the president will show that he's a tolerance, he or she has a tolerance for it. Well, Tevi, I think that all, all that is very sound, and I'm certain that President Trump will hear this podcast, and everything will be cleaned up there instantly. <laughs> Again, if he so chooses. <laughs> if he so chooses, right. He clearly will not choose, no. Because, I mean, as you point out in the book, his style he got from The Apprentice, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you get what you you know you get what you pay for when it comes to presidents. I think that's true. Like we we knew who we were electing. That that's what we got. So or look, he said, "I like conflict," and that's a direct quote. He said, "Oh, and does he ever?" Uh, yeah. So and, that's, and again, sometimes lack of conflict is problematic, as we saw in the Johnson administration. If it's all groupthink, yeah, that's right. So it's not a lot of groupthink. I mean, there's not a lot of group think going on in the uh, Trump right. White House. Of course, I, know, I have friends who would say there's not a lot of thinking going on in the White House. Uh, what, what I would say is it's a continuum. Right? On one side is complete fealty to the president. Everybody agrees on everything. Um, and then that's stifling. On the other hand is complete dysfunction and chaos where nobody trusts one another to have honest conversations um, behind closed doors. And you've got to get somewhere in between. You've got to have some creative tension where people will actually listen to out outside ideas and not just get caught up in the bubble, but at the same time, you still have to have a level of trust where people can disagree vigorously behind closed doors at the table, but then once a decision is made by the president, they hold hands and they unite to advance whatever policy decision is made by the president. That's a hard line to walk. It is actually a hard line to walk. Well, I I know you have a hard one o'clock, so let me tell people that the book is Fight House, Rivalries in the White House from Truman to Trump by Tevi Troy. We've been talking to Tevi today. Tevi, thank you very much for taking the time out of your schedule to speak with us today. Thanks. I'm a big fan of the Newberg's network. Everybody should sign up for it. All right. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. <laughs>